Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, welcome to part two of um, my lovely chat with the lovely, lovely Sean Lovely Faye. Uh, if you haven't heard part one, go get it in the feed before you listen to this. Here we go. When I was reading the book, I think one of the things I really felt was it had the quality of something that had been around forever. Like when, like it felt like this book had always existed. It was so remarkable what you were saying and how you were saying it. And I know a lot of people have said that there's something, there's a quality about it that is incredibly accessible. And it's, you feel like you're learning loads, but also I feel like I'm in a conversation with you. But one of the things I took away from it was, do you ever sit back and go, what a fucking time to be alive that you, you know, it's, I think it's important to recheck that you really should not be being treated like this. And there should never be any normalizing of that, you know, that you have to write an argument for (laughs) justice, Mm -hmm. you know, and what does that feel like? Do you have a sense of that? Or Mm. do you allow yourself to have a sense of that? I don't always allow myself to, I think, I think I enter quite a calm space because I've realized before anger has never really served me that well. And that's just a personal Mm. observation. I I mean, yeah, I mean, it shouldn't be. The only time that I really noticed it uh, was when I read the audio book because I read my own audio book and you do it in three days like a nine to five in a studio with like an hour for lunch. And obviously like I'd read mm. the book so because the book is, you know, you read the final form of the book. So it was just about a month before the book was published. And um, I'd read the book several hundred times. It felt like, because obviously you go through so many proofreading stages, copy editing, etc. So I was very, very familiar with the text, but I think it was because I had to read it aloud in such a contained space of time with very little breaks and things like that. And actually sometimes some, there was a, yeah, on the second day, I think it was where I was, it was like the chapter about sex workers and the chapter about prisons, like both quite heavy chapters. Mm. And actually I found it really upsetting <laughs> and really distressing yeah. for the first time ever. And I think it was actually having to read that aloud, you know, reading things that like um, awful things that had happened to trans people and realizing, you know, like I think I'd had this distance where it's like, well, I'm a privileged trans person. So this sort of stuff doesn't happen to me. You know, I'm not a street sex worker. Mm. And that's true. But like, obviously, I identify with it because it's like, well, if it was a different, if I'd had a couple of different things happen in my life, it could have been me, you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I've suddenly found it really, really upsetting. And actually, that was like a point where I was like, this isn't, this isn't, this shouldn't be normal. I shouldn't have no. to do this. I shouldn't have to rehearse really traumatic things and present this kind of case for the humanity for an, of an entire group of people, particularly a group of people who experience all of this like shit, basically. Um, so yeah, I, I am wary of that. I, um, but at the same time, what alternative is there? Because unfortunately, what I think people are counteracting 
particularly in the UK, but, you know, in the US, actually around the world, like, you know, it's as bad in Hungary and Poland and Spain. Mm. They have a similar moral panic there about trans people in Spain, actually. Um, mm-hmm. And, in the, you know, it's that, like, unfortunately, there's this huge global anti-gender movement, but, like, anti-trans movement. And, um, yeah, like, if, if, if I don't, you know, if you don't make an argument for it, um, there's just no one will like you know that that's that's unfortunately where we're at and it's all sort of do, it's sort of done the book is for people who hopefully people who haven't read it the book is quite hopeful I think and I wanted it to be because I didn't want to depress people mm. but yeah it's written in the hope that like it it will make itself obsolete <laughs> you know hopefully yes, shorter yes. than I imagine yeah, a shorter period of time than I would imagine um yeah there, there is the hope for that and I was going to say about the point about it being having feels like it's been around forever the one thing is that, like, I mean, if I know people never really look unless they're, like, trying to catch me out or whatever, no one's going to go through all the end notes because, like, what loser would do that unless they're studying the book for an <laughs> academic thing or they're trying to, like, screw me over. Um, but the, you know, the end notes of the book, um, like, most of the citations in the book, and there's, there's yeah, loads, uh, are other trans people. And the reason I mention that is because, like, a lot of that thought in the book, a lot of the arguments you know, I do have make some, some, you know, Sean Fay originals, but like a lot of them are <laughs> arguments that have been around for a long time. Like mm. the thing is, is that like trans people haven't had a great history of like the access to publishing, access to, you know, there are some act trans academics mm. who do stuff and there's activists who do stuff like blogs. A lot of trans community knowledge is spread in like Facebook, secret Facebook groups or like on Twitter, these ephemeral spaces. And so a lot, one of the aims of the book was to kind of take these arguments that I had read and come to under, you know, because I did a lot of research when I transitioned myself about like, how do I counteract this argument? What is the explanation for this? What, what, what do we say if someone puts this stupid argument to you? And I guess over years I've built that up and I do obviously when I when I'm using other people's written arguments, I do, I do cite them. But um yeah, for me I felt like I was what I was trying to do was archive as well, as much as I make an original argument, which I do um in terms of the structure and the voice of the book, is that some of the content is like to actually just put it all in one place because trans people might know where to find these things, but certainly like no one outside trans community seemed to know and cis people didn't seem to know. So to try and put all of these arguments into one place, put them into a logical order, make them legible, because obviously we all use jargon. If you're in a sort of subgroup, you know, mm. there's things that way that trans people references jargon that we all use with each other that wouldn't make any sense to someone completely unacquainted with the topic. So there's a bit of a translation aspect to it too. But like that's yeah. that's the main element of what I did. It wasn't like that no one had thought of these arguments before. In fact, they had. It was more of a kind of... Um, platform problem than a intellectual problem I think yeah and it really feels like that because it feels like I remember I was reading this thing someone was saying about how news has lost the art of the long read I think it might even be a radio 4 show where they kind of like summarize what has happened over six years of a story and let's actually get six six or seven people in a room and like you know, let's discuss the story a bit more coherently rather than this fast throwaway thing every day. And if you if you look at the way that trans rights are spoken about, it is very newsy and it's quite throwaway. Mm-hmm. And then and then and I feel like you just sort of came in and went. I feel like I was watching someone lay like aces out on a poker table. I don't even know <laughs> if you do that, but it was like, look at this. Like, look at trans life now look at what you're doing to sex workers look what you're doing in prisons like look at this like Mm. how and is no you just sort of zoomed out and went this is an ace 
like you are unable to deny this i'm sure some people can but yeah i know well yeah yeah i mean that's the chilling thing but it's like that's what it makes it feel like it was staring you in the face all along which i know we knew it was but um and i just yeah i mean that that, that's really good to hear i mean i'm grateful to hear that of course because that is what i was intending to do is that like yeah archiving is that's the thing with any marginalized community or minority community is that there's a there's a problem of history and of archiving too and i use Mm -hmm. history a lot in the book and yeah, I think I think I think those things are very powerful to like to both you know cite things within history. So uh, you know I, I use a lot, couple of like fun anecdotes from history to illustrate points at times, but also yeah to kind of um, yeah take a holistic view. And I was I was really impressed by writing that I'd seen do that for other groups. So like I mention it all the time, but like why I'm no longer talking to white people about race with Rene uh, Delages, but mm. um, it's funny because I know Rene now, but. Um, when I read that, like I was someone that felt like I was probably pretty clued up on like the nuances of how racism works and things like that, and and felt like I was engaged with that conversation even before that book came out. Not not my whole life, but like in my adult life, maybe. Mm. You know, I was really appreciative of the fact that like, yeah, there was a lot of stuff, and it was really British as well because a lot mm. of stuff was seemed to be borrowed from America, and a lot of it, a lot of things I'd learned about microaggressions how racism functions as institutionally not just like people shouting slurs in the street yes. i've learned from like following people on social media or whatever but it was really good to have like a text that you could either give to other people or refer back to and that was rooted in like black british history because i'd never read that history i mean i was never taught that in school and um i knew a little bit about martin luther king and american stuff from film and cinema but i didn't i didn't know anything about you know i grew up in bristol and she mentions the bristol bus strike or whatever and it was like well you know I grew up in that city and I didn't I didn't know anything about that um so that had really impressed me Mm. as had um revolting prostitutes by Juno McAmory Smith and again like yeah the same thing about sex worker arguments and so and I use I use both of those books I refer to them both in my own um and yeah I just thought well no one's done this for trans particularly British trans people and um what's happened what was happening in the media was um, a, a lot of art, a lot of articles. When you say it's quite newsy, well, a lot of articles will. It's like it'll be about J.K. Rowling and how awful it's been for her being cancelled <laughs> or whatever. Um, and what it would open up with is like, well, we all know trans people are discriminated against, but what about women who are trying who are being silenced? And I remember thinking, why is it that obligatory sentence being like, well, we all know that trans people discriminate? I was like, I don't think we do. I don't think actually because mm. because all that ever happens is that everyone refers to the fact that trans people are discriminated against as an offhanded thing before they start talking about what the problem with us is and, um, and I was like well actually I never read it laid out anywhere the ways in which specifically trans people are discriminated against mm. like, sometimes people would just be like oh yeah well they like honestly and then I've been surprised about like how many people don't realize like like tra- like how much trans people struggle to get a job and I'm like did what did you think the discrimination looked like like yeah. and, and and yeah and, and so so yeah I think I was keen to lay that out basically because 50% of people who are trans hide it at work, is that right? Yeah, yeah, who are yeah. in, yeah, if they're in work, um, then yeah, 50% will hide it, which I think either that's um, hiding it like they don't, you know, if they, 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 they hide as the sex they were assigned at birth, or they've transitioned and then they conceal the fact that they were assigned a different sex at birth. Mm. Um, and I know people who fall into both of those categories, like just personally. And it's un- easy to understand why there can be still a lot of hostility. Um, I, I have a one friend and she, I can't, I obviously won't 
say exactly what industry she works in. But she does a very, I love it because she does like a very aggressively normie job. Um, she's like, I love the fact that she's like in a very normie job in London and she stealths and no one knows that she's like a completely um, erratic transsexual behind scenes. And, <laughs> and, but like, you know, I have a lot of, um, you know, I get a lot of hostility in my work because everyone knows everywhere I go, obviously it's like part of my brand to sign trans is, you know, one thing that she has to experience sometimes is people saying really transphobic things, not knowing there's a trans person in the room. And I feel mm. like that must be really, really hard because it's like, well, you've, it, it's a constant reminder that, you know, like, because people aren't going to say, like, people might be talking shit about behind my back, but I'm gone. I'm, I prefer that. Like, I'm out of the room. Like, if you want to be like that, there's that. She male. But like, yeah, it's a very different thing. And then, and then also, if you want to transition and mm. you're hearing your colleagues say that, how are you, it's not exactly an inviting space to come out and start transitioning at work, is it? So, no. yeah. So yeah, that, that, that's like one example. And then there are just some people, particularly if they're working class, particularly if they're pe- people of colour, particularly if they're not able to blend in um, as much and are more visibly gender non-conforming, who, who struggle to get jobs at all. And that's why a lot of people do sex work. Yeah. And also the, you know, you're saying, oh, people go, oh, you know, oh, everyone knows that the trans people are scrutinized against but the embeddedness of the transphobia one of the things you reminded me of in the book that i am so staggered to remember because i remember it is that tv show there's something about miriam Mm -hmm. that was what channel was that on because you didn't it was on like sky one or whatever wasn't it it was on a sky channel i remember because we had sky my mom did fork out for that and then i remember watching it (laughs) so if you don't mind and it's not a traumatic thing to describe will you just remind people who don't know about this show what it was about because I remember it yeah so there was a (laughs) so there was a a sort of bizarre trend in like early noughties when reality tv was really big where like obviously every production company big it was a high big brother but like every tv production Mm. company it was really the, the, the the height of reality tv and there was like this whole genre of reality tv show that like liked to basically based on like shenanigans around sexuality. Like there was one called Playing It Straight, where there were all these men and the woman had to guess which of them were gay and which of them weren't. It was with like June Sarpong. And I remember like June Sarpong. Was June Sarpong involved? Yeah, she was like holding up. a. It wasn't like that homophobic. I mean, I don't know. I haven't seen it in through the eyes of 2021. I mean, we probably would all find it a bit problematic mm. now. But there was like a really funny thing where I remember like, June Sarpong hanging up, like, holding up a pink shirt being like, what about this then? Hmm? Hmm? Seems gay. What, trying <laughs> to like smoke them yeah, out? Like, oh my come on. God. It was called Playing It Straight in Britain. But the original Dutch version was called Herken de Homo, which is literally find the homo. <laughs> anyway, anyway so yeah, so there was this like whole genre of it. So there's something about Miriam wasn't the only one, but I would argue it was probably the cruelest one. And so there's something about Miriam. Obviously, you can probably get what, what, the, what it was referencing in terms of the film. And Miriam was a Miriam Rivera was a 21 year old Mexican model, very high, very feminine presenting, very beautiful. Um, but she was trans and, um, and as they stressed heavily throughout, she was, uh, she had not had lower surgery. So she still had a penis and, um, it was kind of like, yeah, this show where the men were competing to go on a holiday date with her, 10,000 pound prize and a holiday with her. 
And so like all these challenges and it had like multiple episodes. And obviously the audience knew that she was trans and they didn't. And that was like a big thing. And they were very keen to sensationalize every time someone made out with her. Some of them like, you know, mm. you know, kissed and caressed her or whatever, or like got close to sex. And it was all this, ooh, they're being gay and they don't know. And um, and then the final yes. fi- finale is like she picks the man that was one and mm. he's like elated or whatever. And then she reveals she's trans. Um, and then like all the other men are like still in the background. They all start laughing at him. And he looks like he's like, I don't know, someone's shot his entire family. And she just looks, you know, like mortified. It's just very, very cruel television. And Mm. then, um, what happened after is a lot of the men sued the production company for sexual assault for, you know, it was very exploitative, right? Like it, it was exploitative of the men. It was exploitative of, um, Miriam Rivera. And but yeah. like a lot of the reviews blamed Miriam, right? Like that she was ultimately, um, you know, like some some kind of you know deceiver and deceptive and really cruel person. In reality, she was a twenty one year old who probably thought she could, you know, she could make it on TV or whatever. Or she was clearly very exploited. Mm. Um, but it was deeply cruel television, and it was actually the, the. I don't say this in the book. But it's probably the first time I can remember seeing a trans woman on television. And that's quite sad um, because it was the year before Nadia was on Big Brother and won Big Brother, which was better representation, mm-hmm. if you like. But I mean, I guess I didn't because I didn't know that I was going to ultimately be a trans woman and transition and live as a woman at that time. Um, but like as first introductions to the concept of what a trans woman is, is it was pretty bleak. And mm. certainly it did make me think like when I, it was one of many pop culture references about trans women and men that when I transitioned after a few years as a, trying to be a kind of very gender non-conforming twink, I, I really thought that was going to be the end of my sex life. Um, mm-hmm. because I, you know, it really, really like impaired my confidence about the likelihood that I would ever have a normal dating life. Um, because yeah, mm. I'd seen like Miriam was one of many depictions of trans women basically being like revolting to straight men or mm. like having to deceive them or, you know, whatever. And that like, you know, the, basically the idea of men like either heaving, being sick or laughing or whatever is going to be your reality. And the reality yes. is that's not true. And I, and I think that's probably changed now, hopefully a bit for younger, um, tra- I can't speak for trans men, but for trans, uh, women, I think it's it's probably a little bit better now because there are more positive TV cultural representations of trans women who are attractive and not a joke and, you know, all that stuff that you kind of Mm. need to see. And, and, you know, it just illustrates how baked in it was, you know, like it was Mm. that, that transphobia was so baked in that it's sort of almost invisible and therefore how far we've yet to, yet to go. Um, and, and, And you mentioned that that, felt like it was painting out your future but I think it's important to note that that hasn't been your reality at all has it you know and you've no. <laughs> you know you've dated and had a brilliant time with many people <laughs> who adore you for the person you are you know like okay a, a, with many people you call me a slag <laughs> <laughs> it's on your Instagram bio Sean don't blame me <laughs> Um, yeah, well, it's true. And the thing is, is that, you know, this is what's bizarre too, right? Is that like, mm. if, if you want it, if we want to go there, is that like, you people would be surprised. I mean, what's funny is that people would be surprised how little 
I think, and things are changing rapidly too, is that like actually trans, being trans has not really impeded my dating life at all. And mm. <laughs> especially what, it was me that was impeding it and the confidence and the narratives. I mean, like, yeah, I have to set high standards and there are men who could be either fetishistic or chasers or whatever, um, or, or would see me but wouldn't see, you know, but I just have too high standards. Obviously, I have evolved self-esteem and I don't, I don't, but like women generally have to have so straight men are terrible um but like um but like yeah it's not what i thought you know not what i was raised by the culture to think trans life would be like what trans dating would be like or how i'd be sexually perceived how my own body would be perceived about how i would view myself and that's not just about sex or romance that's just about like yeah, it doesn't matter. Like, I don't. You, we shouldn't all be consumed with having to be. Like, I'm not saying everyone has to feel amazingly beautiful all the time. But if mm. you're actually only ever come to understand people like you as a grotesque or repulsive, that's a, that's a very different thing. Mm. Um, and and that's just not true. And I and I think yeah, I think the poses and the um, euphorias and you know people like Hunter Schaefer and Indian mm. Moore and people like that, like, they really are. Ch- you know, in the amount of people now in public life i think they're changing the perception as well for younger trans people mm. a lot of the time you hear saying something which is um incorrect but i'd love to talk to you more about which is that oh well trans liberation is kind of just gay liberation with a 20-year you know snooze button on it mm. and actually that's that's a sleep we were sleepwalking into that and it, it's incredibly different and i think that's something about miriam illustrates that because that that kind of show has not been made about gay men maybe similar but different you know never quite like that and how do you feel about it when people say that and um what do we need to learn um so yeah so there, i can see where so there are some parallels um the idea of sexual deviance and like, you know, it was really, really bad in the 80s and 90s. People really, really have forgotten how terribly gay people, generally lesbians too, but like, mm. obviously with the AIDS crisis, gay men um, particularly were, were talked about and in the media. But yeah, I think the wariness about that 20 year timeline is it allows a, like a certain complacency, like, oh, history will yeah. just unfold itself. We'll sit it uh, out. Yeah. yeah, the right side of history will win. And it's like, yeah, well, actually, gay liberation isn't completely won yet. It might be for like middle class white gay men in London mm-hmm. in the main, not all. Mm. But like, it, it still isn't really there for a lot of like, you know, gay people of colour, working class, you know, the fact that like, with the housing crisis, I mean, like, if you're kind of like from a high rise flat, in, in London or whatever, and you can't afford to move out or whatever, what's your, how are you able to kind of express your gay identity? How are you able to like enjoy sexual freedom? All that sort of stuff um, isn't the case for a lot, a lot of types of gay people. So it's not fully achieved. And and then the other thing is, is that like, yeah, the eighties and nineties, but like there, we're in a very different political context. I mean, like capitalism's out of control, right wing. Um, we have all, you know, we have social media, Right, the ultra right is able to propagandize like never before. Um, mm-hmm. You know, who would have thought something like Trump? I mean, like he's completely like unprecedented in many ways. Mm-hmm. And we've, you know, we've got we've got a lot of crises facing capitalism and therefore humanity. That means that we're not in the same place we were in the eighties and nineties. The other thing um, too is just that there's less trans people. So I mean, like. I mean, if you look in certain sections of the media and stuff like that, I mean, like, you, there are some places where you'd be hard-pressed hard, hard pressed not to find a gay person or a lesbian. But, like, 
trans we we just we're really really tiny i mean like we're just not going to ever be able to be as ubiquitous in some arenas as cis lgb people can be um and that's just mm. a numbers game unfortunately so that that makes it harder and i think gender runs a bit more deeply into people's anxieties than even sexuality does mm-hmm. because ultimately you can sort of make an argument with sexuality i mean within reason you can argue that like oh it's it's about people's private lives it's about like people you know kind of like and i'm not saying this is the argument should be used for gay people because it's not it's the it's the bare minimum argument but if you were going mm-hmm. to be pragmatic it's like well it's what people want to do with their own lives it's what people do behind closed doors not that homophobes have ever cared about that um, but, but with, tr- with right. trans people, I guess, is that how we order public space is so deeply gendered and binary yes. that we are asking for quite big, you know, some, some iterations of what trans people can be asking for, particularly non-binary people, can be quite a profound uh, change in how we understand personhood. I mean, like when non-binary mm-hmm. people say, I'm not a man or a woman, that's, that's really hard for some people to uh, accept, to grasp, because mm. we've had a gender binary that has shaped human culture for certainly thousands of years uh, in, in many, in most societies, or certainly the society that kind of European and North American culture is, it comes from. Mm. And, um, and so, yeah, so that it runs a bit more deeply. So we, I think where trans, what trans people need a little bit more is, I mean, we're lucky, I think, I think it's been really positive, actually. The anti-trans backlash has made especially younger cis LGB people, I think a little bit more clued up and a little bit better. Because I can remember, you know what? I can remember before I transitioned, I had mm. a, he wasn't really a boyfriend, so that would be too grand a title, but I was dating someone. So he was a gay guy because that's what I was living as at the time. Mm. And I don't think, like, I imagine he wouldn't now. He worked in like East London, he worked in fashion or whatever, but he used to use the word tranny all the time. And he used it about mm. drag queens, but also about, transsexual people but it was ignorance right and I remember like having read a bit about it and being like, I remember being like I don't think you, know, you should use that term I think trans people find it offensive and he was a bit like you know he was young so he was like well but I you know I think that's very 2012 and I think if you look like 10 years on I do think you wouldn't you would hear more L- cis LGB people pick someone up on that and say you know, that's not acceptable yes. language like you wouldn't hear that around East London now you don't get drag nights that have that that's there in in the title which you did and i'm really pleased <laughs> you know mm. small mercies is that like one of the things that's been good i think is that this backlash i think a lot of gay and bisexual people and lesbians have seen uh the backlash been reminded of maybe how it reminds them of old, older homophobia and have kind of clued up a bit i mean obviously the book pushes people to go a bit further um because mm. i always think people can do more i mean i can do more for groups that i don't belong to and similarly i think gay and lesbian by people can do assist can do more for um trans people too and i hope the book will help some people to do that or like understand more of the issues yes and and this might be just an irritatingly dumb question but one that i think it's worth marking is that why does someone being trans become an existential question for uh, people who aren't experiencing it and why if there's a person who has a like a skin condition where they can't go in sunlight right no one asks an existential question about why that is the case with them but with someone being trans it's like well what does this mean for everybody else and is that gender 
Is that the moral panic is gender-based? Yeah, it is gender-based because we have had a a very powerful binary. I mean, these ideas, the idea of patriarchy, a system of male domination, and, you know, it's it's based on this idea that, like, you know, you were born with this, these genitals and this, this reproductive system, and this is how you should behave. And gay people are caught in that, and all women are caught in that, like, because... You know, if it's like whether it's about reproductive rights, whether it's about contraception or whether it's about whether women should be like at work rather than like, mm. you know, having babies their entire adult lives until they die. Like people like my grandmother, great grandmother. Yeah, I mean, it affects everyone. So everyone fights against these roles unless you're like you know, some ultra patriarch straight man. But but yeah, that binary thinking st- still really subsists. And there's as much that it confirms for us about how the world should be, how how we structure ourselves and w- what we intuit about other people. You know, it's the first mm. thing we want to know about someone is their gender, usually. Uh, and it's the first thing we intuit, you know, and we attribute, you know, that's why pronouns are so significant, obviously, is we attribute gender to someone immediately. And that's, that's steeply mm. ingrained. So any asking of a relinquishing of that binary way of um, imprinting gender on our culture is, seems very threatening to many people. Um, for a variety of different reasons and you draw lots of those parallels in the book don't you as well yeah what I kind of am at pains to say in the book is that like gender variance is what I call it rather than um transness because transness is a a term that kind of came into being at a certain point in time um, about 100 years ago really Mm. um so before that there were people we might call trans nowadays but they didn't call themselves that and the term didn't exist but they like like cross-gender lives or they had gender variant lives and um that's always existed in humanity and what happened, you know, at this particular point in history is that the, you know, medical profession decided to take over a certain subset of people who might be gender nonconforming and pathologize them and to say, well, okay, if you've got this dysphoria and you need to kind of have healthcare to read, feel more comfortable with it, we're going to gatekeep, we're going to create this category transsexual or transvestite. And we're going to basically say that you're delusional or whatever. We'll give you this healthcare so you don't kill yourself, but you're delusional. You have no clue mm-hmm. about this. You're mentally ill. And that's how, that's the trajectory. And trans people are only starting to dismantle that pathologizing narrative about ourselves now and the trouble with that is is when you say about the skin condition the why is that i think when it's things about mental you know if if it's conflated with mental illness it's the same as when people go looking for a gay gene i mean you'd hope Mm -hmm. now that people are just aren't can't be fucked because it would be like well why would you need to know what a gene is because what's the problem like looking for the gene looking for a cause suggests that you're going to try and find a solution so it's, it's pathologizing so like wanting to know is this preoccupation of people who just fundamentally, I'm very suspicious of people who really want to really are interested in why trans people exist or what gender identity is or whether mm. it's innate or not. Because to me, it's like, it. who cares? Because, you you know, I, I wouldn't want to be not trans now. I would want a less transphobic society, but I don't want to, you know, I'm not interested in being cured. It's, it's this view that we're like... Um, yeah, that we're a bit like unfortunates, really, and that it'd be better if if no one felt the way we do. Yes, and and I find that deeply insulting. And you see a lot of it in culture, particularly around trans kids. Is that it's always like it would be better for the kid to be cis. So the worst thing that could be possible possibly happen is we accidentally diagnose a a cis child <laughs> because we'll ruin their lives. And mm. um, and and actually, it's a really really unhealthy way to view things and i think there's a parallel with sexuality isn't it so i think in the 80s and 90s gay campaigners had to be like we're not recruiting you can't turn someone gay and i think what we're moving to as that's become more accepted you know variance in sexuality 
is actually like we were saying right at the beginning of this conversation is these things aren't that clean cut. More and more people are bi, more and more people behave in a bisexual way, more and more people identify as queer, more and more people, you know, I think would say I wouldn't rule it out. You know, I'm primarily attracted to this gender, but like I wouldn't rule it out. And I think there's a great, great expectation that maybe people aren't as straight as they thought they were. Similarly, I'm all for a society in which it would be fine for you to kind of like, you know, if you want to kind of have a go at transition and then you detransition and then you retransition, you know, it shouldn't, life shouldn't be made any harder for you for that. And actually, we mm. as a society should just be like, well, that's fine. You're not ruined. You haven't destroyed yourself, you know, provided that people have like, autonomy about those things. To, to me, it's just like the idea that like transitions, this really, really last resort thing or, or being le- leading a trans life is kind of like, it's the, it's again, it's the same thing. Like, oh, I wouldn't want my kid to be gay or I wouldn't want my kid to be trans. Like, well, why not? And we're not there. I mean, I think, I think people my age who are having kids, friends, don't wouldn't care if their kids were gay but i still mm. think quite a lot of people would would prefer to have a cis child and i think that's about that's a sign about how far things have to go yes and also everyone saying oh well i'd rather it because out there there are people who yeah. will dot 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 and it's like well out there is actually also in here so why don't you start acting like the world you want how you want the world to be you know exactly exactly yeah can i talk to you about the goldie horn uh vehicle death becomes her you can <laughs> so funny i watched that with my friend tam um literally a weekend last weekend because he had, oh. ne- he had never seen it before and i was like i'm sorry like how have you what? how have you how are you queer and you've never seen this film like it's so funny because it's like one of my favorite films it's one of monroe bergdorf's favorite films it's one of Bimini bambulash's favorite films and it's one of gina dawson's favorite films and i think it's one of paris lisa's favorite films. like <laughs> you know just as a roster of people i <laughs> i think i think that's quite telling and it's one of yours that's good yeah, yeah. i just love that film and then i saw you post online so it must have been a couple of years ago saying how it's it's a film that really speaks to trans people yeah that was about a year trans women sorry yeah was it a year ago yes yeah 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 no it was it was about this time last year it feels like longer because of the lockdowns but yeah yeah i wrote a piece because i think vice wanted me to do some more culture stuff and i was like yeah well i wanted to (laughs) talk about um death becomes her and why why it's almost like yeah it feels like a lot of well like i just listed them like a lot of trans people love it <laughs> tell me um, so did, for anyone who hasn't seen it we just do a rundown of roughly what it's about and tell us the parallels <laughs> so it's one of those films that like was a bit of a box office flop and then rose over the years as a kind of cult camp classic um but it's it was like it's in 1992 and it's like an odd point right because it's like for meryl streep it's after the first wave of her career but before like Meryl, as we know her now, like post Devil Wears Prada, like her golden years of like being the only woman. <laughs> International <laughs> in treasure. Yeah. yeah. So it's this weird midpoint in her career. And it's an unusual performance for her because obviously Meryl Streep is all very like restrained normally and she's like fully very camp in this. And then Goldie Horn as well. So they're, they're, yeah, they, they're, they're playing two aging fr- rivals, frenemies, um, who've known each mm-hmm. other their whole lives, who bitterly despise each other. And uh, constantly have fought over men. And Bruce Willis is the kind of last man that um, Meryl Streep steals from Goldie Horn, um, driving her completely insane when Meryl Streep steals her fiance. And so, uh, so then, yeah, so then, so then um, a few years later, Goldie Horn has been plotting revenge against Meryl Streep for about 14 years. 
and unbeknownst to Meryl Streep, um, she's aging. She's an aging actress, isn't she? And she's kind of career is over because she's no longer young and beautiful. And she decides. She um, basically gets. It's a long story, but there's a there's a sorceress play by Isabella Rossellini who has. Yes, I totally forgot she was in it as well. So Isabella Rossellini (laughs) gives um, Meryl Streep a potion um, that will make her young and beautiful forever and immortal. That's it. Unbeknownst to Meryl Streep, Goldie Hawn also has managed to get this potion and drink it. Um, in order to kind of become beautiful and, and to plot revenge. And she's plotting to kill Meryl Streep with, with them. And then basically that hilarity ensues. Basically all that happens is that they both attempt to kill each other. They destroy their bodies, but they're still immortal. So they walk around as corpses and they have to constantly paint themselves, touch themselves up, um, yes. with paint and with like hardware stuff because they're basically like grayed out rigor mortis corpses that happen to be like ambulant and sentient um yes. and yeah it's just very very camp uh because obviously they're just like bitter rivals um and the film yeah has been really popular with drag queens always since it's kind of cult revival and the reason that i think i think it like yeah i said it appeals to trans women and the same thing and like you know and um, trans feminine people or uh yeah drag queens like bimini one it's camp Everyone loves Meryl and Goldie. Um, They both look amazing in it. Great outfit. It's all about like creating yourself and defying the laws of nature. Like, you know, it's about the idea that you um, can just say, you know, the obsession with being beautiful and young, glamorous forever. Um, It's this kind of fantasy that like a lot, a lot of people I think live in. And, and then, yeah, the breaking the rules of nature to live forever. I mean, like trans women sort of break, we break the rules of nature. We're constantly tweaking ourselves, aren't we? (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know I mean there's a kind of joke that like trans girls only ever talk about men in surgery Um, but of course (laughs) I've written a book to dispute that (laughs) um, yeah this idea this youth obsession you know it it probably speaks to to trans people and trans women Mm. in particular and yeah the idea of defying nature and the idea of pursuing glamour and beauty um, above all else, even if it's kind of like, you know, a little bit codependent and insane. Um, I think it's, I think it's, it's just, think, yeah, it appeals for that reason. And it's, you know, obviously I loved it as like anything um, that turns out to be a queer classic. Like I loved it as a child long before I knew that it was like Same. an archetypal queer classic, but anyone who hasn't watched it, I would recommend. But I think also what I think is potentially what it is about it that speaks to the experience the queer experience is your two like at the end of the film there are these two women who've been bashed around to hell and back everything's dropping off them but they've managed to sort of paint over it and they've still got a few diamonds on but their pits are dropping off them but they have each other and i yeah. think that's the thing about it is like you know you get bashed around by the world but you have each other and that's kind of amazing. You know? Yeah. And I think the other thing that appeals to queer people is like the idea of glamour and beauty is revenge. Like, I think, you know, <laughs> if you look at like, yeah, well, I mean, like, I, yeah. I think I say this in the Vice piece is that like a lot of the reasons that like I've wanted to like look glamorous and look stylish and stuff like that in my life is because like, a big fuck you to everyone that's basically been like, well, you're just going to be an ugly trans person forever. And I think mm. for a lot of drag queens, I think that's why, you know, the really beautiful drag queens often say that. It's like they were bullied at school. They were just mm. like, you know, and it's it was that they could assume this persona that's like this glamazon and yes. it's like a fuck you. Like you can't, you can't touch me. And I think um, 
I think that that sort of like narrative is in the film too, isn't it? It's that yes. you become like invulnerable to pain, um, yes. um, literally, um, by becoming like immortal and beautiful forever. But obviously, there's like a price to be paid for it as well. Do you know that saying? Desire is the loss contained within it. Mm, uh, yeah, I think I've heard that before. But let me think about that. Desire is the loss contained within it. So it's like anything you desire is actually attached to something you feel you don't have, so that you lost, yeah. that you have loss for, so you yearn for it. It reminds me when Mickey Blanco came on this podcast, they said that when they, for the first time, dressed as a woman, mm-hmm. they felt gorgeous for the first time in their life. And that yeah. was remarkable. And then Mickey's journey has been varied beyond that because the way that Mickey identifies is very different now. But yeah, like, it's very fluid, it's, yeah. Yeah, so, but, you know, interesting. Mm, it is interesting, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think... That, I mean, and Andrea Long Chu, um, the trans writer in the US, she talks about transition as desire. It's, there's an essay called On Liking Women. It's very good. It's not that long. It's on N plus mm. one. But um, it's so good about the, because, you know, we're always sort of made to think about transition and uh, as being about like, oh, well, it's because I've got dysphoria. It's a medical condition. You have to treat me. You have to help me. And she's kind of like, well, no, I'm just something people want, you know, like there are lots of things that, you know, you can desire a transition. Mm. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Um, and that's fine. <laughs> you know, yes. it's much, to me, that's a much more uplifting way to think about it. Um, yeah, you can be one of the gorgeous, like, why not? <laughs> yeah, because the rules are being made by the people going through it rather than yeah. being from the outside in. Sean, this has been wonderful. Yeah, it's been good. We've, we've covered so much stuff. <laughs> yeah, probably. we covered quite a lot of ground. Not enough of Goldie Horns canon, if I'm honest. <laughs> Well, if that wasn't nutritious and delicious, I don't know what is because I love her. Email your comments and questions about that there interview, should you wish to. Hello at homosapienspodcast.com. Get in touch on Instagram at homosapiens. Get in touch on Facebook at homosapienspodcast. Send us your agony uncle questions, of course, as always. Next week, we have got our Christmas special. You have all been writing in your stories of Christmas because Christmas is a weird and different time for LGBTQ plus people. What does it mean to you? Do you have to go back in the closet when you go home for Christmas? Do you enjoy it? Do you dread it? Tell us your stories. All of that will be coming up. Plus, other very exciting things I'm not going to tell you about. It's going to be a surprise. I love you all. Merry Christmas. Bye now. Powered by Spirit Studios.